Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for all the things that you reveal to us in your word about who you are and your character, and specifically how we are to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you because of the redemption that we have in your Son. And so we thank you as we start this study looking at the Ten Commandments, uh, the First and Second Commandment, that we thank you for revealing to us who you are and your greatness and your kindness and how you have made us for yourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would understand what idolatry is more and how you truly not only des- um, desire and deserve our loyalty, but also you've won it. And you are so unlike all the gods that we run after. And you yearn jealously over us. So we pray, Lord, that you would grow our confidence in you as our good and faithful Father, and we trust more and more in you each day. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, this week we are looking at the first and second commandment. We briefly went over what discipleship is, what God does to change our relationships with Him and with each other, and how the Ten Commandments apply to us. So now we're going into the the Ten Commandments proper and looking at the first and the second commandment. So let's begin reading Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, if you want to follow along. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. We read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations for those who love me and keep my commandments." So we're going to look at four main things today, how these two commandments show us the real God versus idols and his character, some of his attributes and his greatness and how all those things are the foundation for our discipleship and obeying him, that God doesn't just give us these commands because he has the superior firepower, but because of his character and because of who he is. And then the second commandment and what it means to have images or creating idols and images of God um, and why that's forbidden. And then lastly, why it says that God is a jealous God, why he's a jealous God. So first, the real God. You know, although very few people in our Western societies make physical idols, all of us in some way, according to scripture, have served creatures rather than the creator. Uh, and we do that by taking really good things, really good things in this life, and making them ultimate. We create an idol whenever we look to something or someone to give us ultimate satisfaction and happiness or joy. Um, and that's because God alone, according to Scripture, is the supreme fulfillment of all our desires, that he alone is the source of our comfort and joy. He's the only one who's unchanging and who we were made for. And 
we will never find satisfaction in those finite things or people. It can't happen. Um, as one church writer, Augustine, famously wrote, he said that you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So God created us for this way, that he created us with the need to find our rest in God. And we are going to constantly look for love, that love in all the wrong places because of sin, because of the fall. We're constantly looking for something to fill that need. Um, Another way that we make images of God or bow down to them or not worship the real God is by trying to make God in our own image. What do I mean by that? Well, we can often attempt to tweak or change the God that we find in Scripture to something that's much easier for us to digest, something that really is easier for us in our sensibilities and what we believe and uh, our worldview to kind of grapple onto, grapple onto, and in some sense use for our own agenda. Um, I think it's very common in our day to see that if we don't like something in Scripture and we read in the Bible, for us to rationalize it away and try to change what we see there to fit our own vision. Uh, I think we see that all the time. And this is ultimately, this commandment comes out and just like, has a megaphone screaming out against all our attempts to do that. And this is why specifically God had to redeem us, to bring us out of that constant temptation to make idols, to bring us out of that constant temptation to make God just a bigger, nicer version of us. Um, one, One author put it this way, that the God of the Bible is a strange God, He's not the kind of God that we can manage, manipulate, accommodate, or domesticate to our experience. When God actually confronts us, our speculations are exposed as idols. Our experiences judged as merely a projection of ourselves. And our felt needs give way to more pressing needs that we didn't even realize we had. Um... The God of the Bible, sorry. Sure, yeah. So the God of the Bible is a strange God. He's not the kind of God that we can manage, manipulate, accommodate, or domesticate to our experiences. When God actually confronts us, our speculations are exposed as idols. Our experiences are judged as little more than a projection of ourselves. And our felt needs, when God confronts us, give way to more pressing needs that we did not even realize that we had. Um, We think that our biggest need, our biggest thing that we want, is happiness now and fulfillment and just getting on better in life. And so we very easily try to use God as as a co-pilot in our life story that's going to help us on to our vision of life and success. And we can know that that is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is always jumping out and surprising us. He's always doing things that don't seem like what God should be doing. Um, 
And so the, it's, it's easy, in some sense, to tell the difference between a real God and the, and the, the God the Bible gives us and an idol. Um, an idol will always agree with us. An idol will say things that we kind of expect. And he ultimately will bore us. And he's never going to inspire us to actually worship. Um, the real God, though, is different. Uh, the real God, we would say, number one, challenges us. The real God challenges us. The Bible presents this God who doesn't fit our expectations. He is much more righteous and holy than we like, but he's also much more merciful and gracious than we think he should be. Um, he demands justice, and he judges human rebellion. We see throughout the Bible all of this all these pictures that reveal God's wrath just as much as it does as, as love. And this is not just true of the Old Testament. Like we, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think of like judgment and harshness. Um, Jesus also issues all kinds of challenges to us. And one of the ways he says that, when we, when we throw parties, Jesus says to invite the people who can't pay you back. Invite the poor, the crippled and the lame, the blind and the unlovely, those people that might smell bad. Jesus describes the life of his disciples as one of complete self-denial, of taking up our cross and following him. Jesus then calls us also to love our enemies. Um, if that wasn't hard enough, he says, go and love them and, and give them the, the shirt off your back. Jesus made it sound like it was impossible to inherit the kingdom of God and be rich at the same time. He says all these things that when we see what he's saying in his original context really should shock all of our American sensibilities about life and happiness and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so the real God challenges us. He really challenges us. And to soften God or to tame Jesus is to leave us with a God who isn't really worthy of our worship and admiration. Um, he's a mere figment of our imagination. So if God can't challenge us, if he can't call into question our entire way of life, then we have turned to an idol that can neither help us or save us. Um, so the real God not only challenges us, but the real God also surprises us. He surprises us. In the Bible, God does all these unexpected things that are constantly amazing people around him. He shows mercy. So he's not only like this holy God who's more holy than we can handle, but he's also more merciful than we are. Um, this surprising reality is, is seen that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I think that that's kind of like even in our day, that's, that's something that's still hard to really grapple with in our day-to-day -day basis. We really don't believe in a free gift. I mean, like, I mean, if you just go out in the week, like, it's easy to be cynical and be like, okay, what's the strings attached to that? What's the fine print? 
Where's the line? Where's the, you know, like, we have to scroll out this, like, 10-page thing of just an agreement to get a free Chipotle gift card. You know what I mean? Like, what is, what, like, are you just going to take up my time? Are you going to waste my energy? What are you doing? Um, it's really hard for us as Americans, as cynical Americans, to believe in a really free gift and to live on that basis and then trust someone who says that. It sounds too good to be true, and it's easy for us to be cynical that the God, who's the supreme judge of the universe, could be so filled with gift-giving and graciousness and kindness and mercy um, that this holy God identifies with the unholy, and he, he lifts up his skirts and he runs to his prodigal child and he acts in such ways that are offensive. Um, he doesn't act like a good father should be in first century Palestine or, or whatever imagination we have about fathers today. The tough, macho father. You know, like, no, Jesus out, is out there weeping like a horse who neighs. That's what the Bible says. Like when he's weeping over Lazarus, his friend, it literally says he's like neighing like a horse. And he's just like screaming out, because he loved this man so much. That doesn't sound like the God that we all come to expect. Um, when we expect justice, he shows mercy. When we expect mercy, he shows justice. Uh, and, and that's the thing about an idol, is that an idol never surprises us. It has only for grace for people who we think deserve it. And we're always in that group. Um, People who are like ourselves, maybe a little less, you know, misguided, but really well-meaning, and that's kind of like how we think about us ourselves as Americans, is that you know we're really good people, whether I mean the extremely, extremely moral liberal person who has their virtues that they identify with, or conservative, we all think we're well you know, we're all well-meaning people who are just doing our best. Um, but Jesus comes and he breaks all those categories. The real God comes and, and he shatters all those things with his law, showing how holy he is and how constantly we're making idols. But then he comes and he shows more mercy to murderers and to sex offenders and to the lazy and to the thief on the cross who just makes this, you know, last minute ditch effort to get into heaven right before he dies. And that just sounds like, you know, that's just sounds like cheap grace to us, you know. And this is like so hard for us to come to terms with. Um, but only the God of the Bible revealed to us is so bold as to surprise us with this kind of grace that we would never expect. And that's what we see with the life of Israel constantly. You know, like they're constantly doing things that got get that they think that shouldn't be a big deal. You know, I'm going to go make a golden calf and think that I can worship you with that, and that's not a big deal. And the disciples are constantly around Jesus, and they're just, like, shocked. Like, if you go through the New Testament and the Gospels and the accounts, the big thing that the disciples are constantly shown to be is dumbfounded. They're just like... How habity woody wuddy? You know, like what what's going on, Jesus? You know, like they're just like they're constantly dumbfounded by what he's doing. Um, so the real God not only 
challenges us and surprises us, but he amazes us. Um, he amazes us, and that is what is actually makes him worthy of worship. Um, he shows us that he's greater than we ever thought, and he coming coming to know this and coming to see this actually puts everything else into the proper perspective. And that's what like discipleship is mainly about. It's like actually starting to see things in their proper order and relationship, taking those good things that we make ultimate and putting them as secondary, putting them as gifts, not as gods, putting them as good things that God has put in our life but can't ultimately give us that ultimate happiness that we so desire. Um, God is incomprehensible, infinite, who created us out of nothing and respects of dust in this massive universe that seems to get bigger and bigger all the time. And But God is, sits high on his throne, as Isaiah says, where the train of his robe fills the entire temple and there's smoke and thunder and the seraphim, these six-winged angelic beings, are encircling his throne with their two wings covering their faces and two wings on their feet. And they fly around his throne singing his praises that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. And I think that's one of the things that like, we come to see when God amazes us with these things. He amazes us with his mercy and his grace, his transcendent holiness and otherness, that this is actually just a story of reality. Um, no one in their right mind would want to make this kind of thing up. And it actually is so surprising and seemingly impossible that it actually kind of starts making sense. And we start seeing the world through the lens, like seeing it through the lens of Scripture. Um, when we submit ourselves to the real God, the truth will amaze you when we understand that God is so gracious, He's making all things right. He's renewing creation. He's reordering the world. And he's displaying his wisdom in all these kinds of ways that are shocking. So that is the real God. The real God challenges us, surprises us, and amazes us. Any thoughts or questions before we go to the second point, the greatness of God? All right, so the greatness of God. Um, in this, these first two commandments, we see God revealing himself, and this is where discipleship begins. This is where our life begins, standing in the awe of his majesty, his holiness, his grace, his otherness, that he can't be tamed. He can't be tamed. When we try to tame him, that's when things go bad. Um, when we try to tame him, we, we just tend to imagine like he's that big man upstairs, that he's only bigger and smarter and more powerful than us. And yet, when God reveals himself to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, he's showing himself to be in a class all by himself. Um, he is the Lord of all things, who's all-powerful, but he's also supremely good. This is, this is really good news for us. The greatness of God can't be separated from his goodness. 
They're, they're, those things got to go hand in hand. If God is great, but not good, then then he really is just this all-powerful monster um, who isn't worthy of our service and worship. A God who's good, but but not great, you know, he can't save us. He can't go in into the fire, jumping, jumping into the, like the fiery building, like, and he'll just sit there with us, you know, and just like, oh yeah, I'm going to empathize with you guys. But no, what we need is someone who's so great that he can take us out of that fiery building and save us as well. And sadly, that, that's one of the things that many people in our day think it's either or, you know, Sometimes we, in the Reformed world, we so emphasize God's sovereignty that we miss his goodness and his fatherly hand, that his sovereignty makes him sound like an all-powerful monster. And, and on the other hand, a lot of people can emphasize his goodness and his love to such a degree that he actually can't do anything to help us. Uh, both things are just our tendency to turn God into an idol, even taking good aspects of who he is and conflating them. Um, God's goodness is the very foundation of his greatness. His power is not arbitrary, um, but his goodness is his power to create us for himself, for that real love and that fellowship, and for also his ability now he's, we see it in redeeming us for himself which is the entire foundation, as we saw last week, for the entire Ten Commandments. The whole thing is him, the whole foundation for his worship and his expect, expecting us to follow his commands is based on how far he went to redeem his people out of slavery. Um, God creates the world in real freedom and love, giving us the power to choose good and evil, and even though we have chosen evil for ourselves and idols, God, in his very character, does not change. Um, he is revealed as the Lord. If you look at the, in the, in the scripture passage that we, we read, it has the, the, the word Lord and, and capital letters, um, which is from the Hebrew Yahweh, that is, I am who I am. That's his covenant name. That's his name of intimacy and relationship to us, of his unchanging nature, of who he will be and who he is and who he was. That's the context that God is giving us for the Ten Commandments. Um, that God has to come in with his megaphone and yell into the world who he really is because we're going to, like, take all these things and try to make shift a God of our own liking. And so he has to come in and clear that away before we can worship him correctly, before we can live correctly. Um, God is revealing himself as Yahweh, as this unchanging one. He's immutable, as we say. That's one of his characteristics, one of his attributes of who he is, is as unchanging. And this, this word immutability can be kind of like a little scary, but it's one of, the, one of the really big comforts that we have in the Christian life as we follow and walk after him because it tells us about his character and why we can trust him. So there are, 
when we talked about the doctrine of God several weeks ago, we said that there are several different attributes of God, some that he has himself because he alone is God, and then some that he shares with us. So if you think of communication, like a communicable disease is something that you pass on to somebody else, like the flu or something that's, in that way, incommunicable is something that God doesn't pass on. Incommunicable means that it's something that he has alone. So he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's present everywhere. But likewise, he, he shares with us his holiness and his love and his justice and his wisdom, his grace. But God's immutability is one of those attributes that he doesn't share, that we change, but he is changeless. God, said, God is the one who remains the same, as the psalmist said, and your years will never end. I, the Lord, do not change. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change. James 1.17 So God is showing His tender care for fragile creatures that change. Um, and in this passage, when He says that I am the Lord, He's stressing his changelessness. We all have to accept change, whether we like it or not, because nothing in this world stays the same. Um, whether we plan on it or not, things are going to change around us. And so we need this anchor of our security and our happiness standing firmly in God's unchangeability. Uh, he will not be transient. He will not be one way today and another way tomorrow. And you're like, oh, I think I love you today, but uh, tomorrow you had a bad hair day, so I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to touch you. Um, you, you know, you're smoking one day in private, and I saw that, you know, and I got a little too close to that person the other day, so no, he's not changing. He's not changing like us. He doesn't have moods or bad days or new and improved ways of doing things. Um, He's so perfect that anything that it would be changing in him would be moving away from perfection. He is a burning, shining, holy love that's dependable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God of the steadfast covenant faithfulness, unlike all of our idols, unlike all the things that we want. Um, his name proclaims that. That is, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. He is Yahweh. So what can this mean for us? Well, I think one of the things as we learn to be disciples is that we don't have to mourn over things that we lose. Things are slipping out of our grasp all the time in our daily lives. And, you know, we grow up, our children grow up, they change. Everyone changes around us. We have friends one day. We don't have friends the next day. Jobs come and go. Money, fame, good looks and health. Every facet of our reality comes and goes. But God can be depended on as that Savior who is the same today, tomorrow, and into eternity. We can let go of the rest of those things because we will always have him. I love how one writer paraphrased it. They said that the only said he said the only love 
of the immutable, only love of the immutable can yield tranquility. Only when we love the unchanging can our hearts start to have peace. And this is the beginning. This is the beginning of what discipleship looks like. It's sitting down and, and, and being in awe of who God is, resting in his word, how he's revealed himself as the real God, and then seeing his character as something that's worthy of our worship, that's worthy of lifelong following up after him, picking up our cross. Because um, at the end of the day, if, if, if this is just an idol that we're following, when life gets hard, it's the, it will ditch him. You know, if God isn't all these things, he's not worthy of following when life is hard. But if he is this unchanging, immutable one who is great and good and loving, and he's going to carry us through, even through death, he is really worthy of obedience and love and worship. So that brings us to the second commandment. Any questions or thoughts before we go to the second commandment? All right, so we've uh, talked about how this real God reveals himself, his greatness and his character as revealing himself as Yahweh. And now we come to the section where he says that we're not to make any carved image or any likeness of anything and bow down to them. Now, I think when we hear these kind of commands, because we live in a very different society and culture, that they sound very strange. It's a kind of a harsh thing for God to say since he's invisible. Um, why not have pictures or statues or images to worship God with? You know, we're, we're visual creatures after all. But I think it's, remember, it's good to remember um, that God is grounding this command in him redeeming, redeeming us out of slavery. He's grounding, this, he's grounding this command in how he's saved us, and it flows out of what we've already talked about. Um, that he deserves our respect and love and obedience, not because he has the superior firepower, as we said, but he's created us for this love and obedience. Um, and I think that it's helpful to think about what idols were in the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, religion, magic, and superstition were all intertwined. They were all kind of brought together and it was very common to try to attempt to control your deity, or your God, through secret names and incantations and spells and, and idols and having a small image of your idol. And a lot of people thought that if you just did these certain things, sacrifice these animals or whatever it was, they could control the happiness of your, of your idol, of your God. So very different than Yahweh, as, we've, as we're seeing. Um, the gods of the ancient world were fickle, and like one day they're like, oh, well, those humans are just like, they're really noisy, and they're just messing up our sleep. We just got to flood the world. And that's like a lot of actually some of their stories of the flood. It's like they just got tired of listening to how noisy we were. And so the next day, like, yeah, I think we're just going to wipe them out. Um and so like in this ancient world, the idols and how they did religion, 
was they thought they could have better crops, a large family, and religion was the way that you got those things. Um, it was the the original, the real OG prosperity gospel, name it and claim it kind of thing, where the, where gods existed for you to coerce through all these different things in order to get what you want. And that was just like temporal happiness and large family and crops and animals and all the, all the things that made for money and wealth back then and fame. And so the Lord is making this command in this specific context that he cannot be confined to anything or anyone. He can't be coerced to give his grace or love. And to make such an image is to do violence against God and his character. And that's what returning to Egypt is. This whole understanding of returning to Egypt that Israel constantly struggled with was returning to this this system that was safe. Like, you know, where, where their gods were safe and, they, and their expectations were safe. Yeah, we had really hard time making bricks out of nothing. Um, and, and the gods that we worshipped, you know, they, it was really tough, but it was safe. And they knew that they were going to get a certain amount of food and a certain amount of sleep. And, you know, like, it was horrible living, but it was safe. And God was ripping that whole thing apart and saying, that's not barely worth living. That's not life. That's death. And you can't um, confine me to this system. You can't confine me to a way of trying to coerce me to get what you want. Uh, God is so much more desirous of something more infinite in glory for us than what we can imagine. And so God is saying, you can't make any of these images or idols or you can't coerce me in this way. And we see the next thing after God gives all his commandments in in Exodus 32, what does Israel do? They go and start making a golden calf. Like that's just like the tendency is like, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, the Ten Commandments sound great. Um, Let's get on to real religion. And what did they do? They, They actually thought they could worship Yahweh through the golden calf. They said, this is the Yahweh who's brought you up out of Egypt. Um, their problem wasn't worshiping a false god. It was worshiping God falsely. And so God is commanding, you can't do that. You ha- I have to tell you how I'm going to be worshipped because we're just going to like, okay, that's great, but let's do what's familiar and what's nice and what I can grapple onto and hold. And march around and make him go where I want him to go. And God said, no, none of that. Um, because it would make salvation impossible, because that's exactly the idolatry and the this, and this enslavement that God has to save us from. Does that make sense? Like, So God is saying, like, you can't do that, because that's exactly what I need to save you from. That's what leads to destruction and wrath and our own sin is that's what that's what it leads to, um, and God is giving us as we heard last week from the, um, Pastor Rob's sermon. He meets with us and abides with us specifically through words and promises. It's a very different way 
So you see like images, icons, and idols, and, and God is saying, no, you can't make those things, and I'm going to give you my words, my promises. Um, those things are fickle and changing and going to turn to dust, and they can't hear you. They can't hear your cries. But I, my words, my promises are unchanging. And those are the things that you have to worship me according to. Um, God doesn't let himself be seen, but he's rather just seen through his speaking. Uh, he's heard. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the organ of faith, the organ of discipleship is the ear, not the eye in the Bible. Um, and that's what we're constantly seeing, um, that the image of God doesn't come down until we see the person of Christ, that he, that he is the true image of God. God doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else. He's, he can't do that. He's, he, he only is showing his glory as Christ comes on the earth. He's the true image of God. Um, the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. The transcendent God makes himself man, and we call him the Word of God. The, the second person of the Trinity is also called the Word of God. And we latch hold of him, we, we hold on to God through his Word and his promises. Like that's how we don't go to idols is we hold on to his words and his promises. Um, anything less, the Bible, that's what the Bible says is idolatry. He's putting these things together. You know, you can't follow other gods and you can't worship idols. These things kind of like all come together. And God is a jealous God who yearns and desires this for us. And he's constantly having to try to take our eyes off of those idols, off of those things in our lives, and putting them back on him, on his son. Stop cluttering out everything and, and, and just listen to my son speak and hear him and keep yourselves from idols. And the reason that we hear as a reason, as lastly as we're trying to wrap things up, is that he's a jealous God. Uh, he's a jealous God. You know, we often think of of jealousy as a bad thing, something that we should avoid, and because our sinful hearts are coveting other what other people have. But God's jealousy is, is very different than ours. For him, it's really appropriate and really good. Um, and this re- specifically in regard, as we're talking about, in regards to idolatry, which is worshiping anything other than the true God, or worshiping the, the true God wrongly. And God is saying he's jealous over his people to acknowledge him and worship him as he commands and as, as he desires. Um, God's jealousy is proper to who he is. It's proper to who he is. We, sh- we see that, it, that God is a good and holy God who not only deserves all our praise and honor, but he also cares for us, for what's best for us. And and he's saying, like, you have to trust me to know what's best for you. 
He is jealous for us as the Bible constantly is portraying it as a, as a husband is for his wife. We're in this covenant relationship with God, like the covenant of marriage as we think about, and God is portraying himself all the time as someone who's jealously yearning over his spouse, who's going and constantly leaving him for idols. And God wants us to be faithful to him because he's been faithful to us. He's gone over and above to bring us out of a house of slavery, out of a house of prostitution. Like that's how the Bible describes it. Like we were out prostituting ourselves to all these other gods and all these sins. God is taking us out of that and now he's putting us in a new home. He's putting us in this context of safety. And so the commands he gives us are for that freedom, for the for true flourishing instead of being in a house of prostitution. And he is jealous for us because he must be for him to be this truly good God that we were made for. God's jealousy is also, as we see, dangerous in this passage. Um, he doesn't tolerate the worship of idols. Uh, and when we, people do worship them, he, that brings about his wrath and his jealousy and his jealous anger. And, But this doesn't turn God into some kind of monster because it's specifically attached to our good. If you remember what we talked about at the beginning, God is the one that we were made for. And so when we go off to other things, it leads to our self-destruction. It leads to our death and our perishing. And so God's jealousy for us is only, isn't only because of his glory, but it's also because it's what our, we were made for. Um, and he knows that what's best for us. So his plan of redemption is so woven together with his glory, but it's also woven within our, with our true happiness, with true happiness and what it means to be human, which can only happen from communion with him, which is why idolatry then brings judgment and self-destruction. So God's jealousy is, is a good thing in this context because it's pursuing us. He's pursuing us like that faithful husband should be. And when we desire to be selfish, autonomous, the rulers of our own destiny, God is saying, don't go there because that leads to destruction. Don't go to that path. Go, don't go back to the house of slavery because that ultimately leads to our death. Come back to me. This God who does not need us, who's, who's really perfect in every single way, yet he wants us. Like that's what he's saying when he's saying he's jealous for us. He wants us and he loves us with such adoration and, and love and seeing our goodness and our worth and our beauty. I mean, what other God expresses himself like that? What other God expresses this kind of desire where he says, like, I'm yearning over your souls to the point of tears? That's just like, it's just like amazing. When was the last time our money or our self-esteem or our clothes 
or sex or fame or honor or any of those things or fortune wept over us. I, I don't know when. Like, I can't. I was like, when was the last time it cried out to us in such deep love, weeping like a horse for us? But that's the God we see in Scripture. Like, He's jealous over us and He's yearning for us with the passion that can't be matched by any idol. Um. He willingly enters into this covenant relationship with us even when we're constantly going after these idols and after our sin. I mean, like, he's just constantly pursuing us. And we're like, oh, that's too good to be true. That's, you know, that's really, really, God, you're embarrassing me. Um, but he doesn't stop there. He's, he's the hero that we really need and that we long for. He casts down those idols on the cross. And where sin is always over-promising, but always under-delivering, God is the opposite. He's, he's under-promising, but he's constantly over-delivering. He's giving us more than we could hope or imagine. Sin always under promise, over, always over promises and always under delivers. It never gives what it, we think it can. But God is the one who always is over delivering on His promises. And the Lord is the one who can hear us where we've fallen, because He's fallen to a deeper point of distress than anyone on the cross. And so, doing that, He can save us to the uttermost. So I think that in wrapping up right now, uh, Christ in these two commandments that he gives to us, he's showing that he not only deserves and he's demanding our loyalty and service, but that is actually something that he's won. And that is his affection for us should just drive us to serve and worship him in in the way that he asks. Because he's the captain of our salvation, leading us to the true waters of tranquility and peace. All of what we desire in the arms of these false idols, he's like giving us freely and more abundantly, yearning jealously over us and weeping over us in our sin and bringing us back to himself. Um, So this is who the real God is. And we shouldn't want it in any other way. Any... Questions or comments or thoughts as we wrap up today? It's a lot to digest. <laughs> but it's beautiful. I think it's just like we, we think of the commandments in, in very harsh categories, but they're really quite beautiful because this is what we were made for. Well, let's close with a word of prayer then. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time of study and these two commandments and how precious it is to receive your word and hear about who you are as the real God who's challenging us and surprising us and filling us with amazement by how you jealously yearn after us and yearn for our souls to be with you. 
So we pray, Lord, as we think about these things, that we would grow in our discipleship and what it means to follow after you because you deserve it and you have won it. So we pray, Lord, as we go to worship, that you would prepare our hearts and allow us to worship you as you so desire. And it's in your son's name we ask. Amen.